let's uh, turn our attention to Colossians. We've, of course, been studying this book. Um, and uh, we come today, I love this passage of scripture. It's been a particularly helpful passage of scripture in my life. So let's look at Colossians 4. I'm going to read verse 2 through 6. Of course, the Apostle Paul writes these things to the church at Colossae. Uh, and, and the church at Colossae was, of course, surrounded by many other churches. This letter would have been passed around. Uh, but more importantly than any of that, this letter was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And so even right now, even to this church here in 2023, by the power of God, is instructive to us. And so let's hear together the word of Christ, the word of our Lord from Colossians 4, verse 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I was actually asked this week, I had this little interview thing, and this guy asked me um, if I'm hopeful or encouraged by where the church is, not just you know, our church, but the church in general. You know, how, how do I feel about the church at large? Am I encouraged by it? Am I hopeful toward it? And I said, man, I'm very hopeful toward it. I, I actually see evidences of God's grace working through his church all the time. I see it in my church. I see it in other churches. I see it in churches around the world. I am so hopeful. Now, if you read a lot of like Christian news media, you may not be so hopeful because all the headlines of like Christian Christian news media that I see are things like the church is in crisis, you know, or scandal in the church or problems in the church. I feel like this is all I see from Christian Christian news media outlets uh, in this age. But I would kind of exhort us, Christ's covenant, not that there's not scandals and crises, not that there's not things that are troubling that exist, but I would kind of exhort us, let's, let's be a little more wise than maybe some of the editors of these publications. Let's, let's have a little broader understanding of the history of the church. And again, not to belittle these things, but if you look at the church at large, the church has always had troubles. People always are prone, I want you to hear this, to reflect the world at large. People in the church are always prone to reflect the, the sinful world that is around them. And so the church is always in need of correction. The church is always in need of instruction. The church is always in need of reminders. I mean, even in the very, very earliest stages, the most pure stages of the church, when people who are witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ were still alive, we have these New Testament letters. And that's what they're full of. They're, they're full of instruction. They're full of correction. They're full of encouragement. They're full of reminders, reminding the church of, of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be faithful to Jesus. And we, we all need this. You know, I, I'm not going to read the whole quote, but, but Don Carson has this great quote that says, we, we don't drift toward godliness, right? 
If there's not an effort or a pursuit of God, we don't just drift toward humility. We don't drift toward godliness. In fact, we drift away from those things. Which again is why we need letters like, you can take this slide down because I'm not gonna read it, but this is why we need letters like the book of Colossians. Now today, what Paul gets to in the text is I think a reminder that probably we all need at least a little bit. And it's instruction or a reminder toward evangelism. Now, evangelism is one of those things in the life of the church that I think has become a little taboo. Uh, It's certainly something that I think we've probably all seen abused. And we've maybe kind of, again, picked up on the culture at large, what the culture at large might say about evangelism. You shouldn't be pushing your faith on other people. It's It's okay to have your own faith, but let's keep it private. Let's keep it to yourself. You don't need to be going around trying to force people that believe different than you do to believe what you do. You certainly don't need to be telling people that have different beliefs than you do that they're going to hell or anything like that. Just, just enjoy your faith yourself, but, but keep it to yourself. I think that's a good question for us to ask. Is, is there even a place for evangelism in a modern world? Well, of course, I think we need to start with what is evangelism? What evangelism is? Now, evangelism begins with, and I'll just say this, the evangel. And the evangel is the Greek for good news. The evangel, the good news. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We have, as Christians, good news. that, That we can be reconciled to God through Jesus. We have, as Christians, good news that we can know God. I mean, I just think about this, that God delights in us and desires us to delight in him. We have the good news that in Jesus, all of our sin can be forgiven. None of our sin is counted against us. You know, we, we, we just sang that song, you've been good to me, you've been so good to me. Just even in the very nature of that, that, that we don't have to stand before God underneath the condemnation of our own sinfulness. But in the cross of Christ, all of our sin has been paid for. And, and, and through faith in Jesus, your sin has been removed from you. No matter what you've done, no matter how disgusting you may feel this morning in a worshipers of all these beautiful little Christians. Through Jesus, your sin has been removed from you as far as the East is from the West. That's good news. We have the good news that even though, man, we try and we try and we try, we can't ever really fully achieve righteousness. We have the good news that a righteous record, the righteous record of Jesus himself, the perfect son of God has been applied to us through faith. We stand before God, forgiven, innocent, righteous, as Jesus is righteous. We have the good news that even though we are very weak, we are very feeble human beings. And the older I get, the more and more and more I'm reminded of my own weakness. We have the good news that through faith in Christ, you have the power of God. The power of God that even overcomes death. The power of God that promises eternal life with God. Now that is good news. That is is a great evangel. That is great good news for us. And so, of course, if we believe this, if this is fundamental in our lives, if we really believe that this good news has been applied to us, of course we would share it. Now, the the truth of the matter is, if if we're being honest here, even if you've come today and you said, I don't like these pushy Christians, always trying to push their beliefs on other people. If you're really honest, we're all evangelists. We, We all... Whatever news we believe is good, we, we share. And, and here's really a simpler way to put it. We all want everyone else to think like we think, right? 
We all just want everybody else to think like we think because we've got it figured it out. Mark Lilla, who is, uh, he's a professor at Columbia University um, in New York City, uh, professor of humanities. He, he wrote a very interesting article and it's probably getting close to 20 years uh, or so ago now, but it was about going to a Billy Graham crusade. And it's a fascinating article, but he tells, he tells his own story in the article and uh, he talks about having become a Christian. He says, you know, when he was 14 years old, he had a born-again experience, and he became a Christian. He called himself a born-again believer. But when he got into college, now he didn't use this word, but this is kind of the word people are using today. He deconstructed his faith, right? He, he got into college, and he fell away from the faith. He, he, he went away from Christianity. He became a secular person um, he became a skeptical person. And, and even today, I mean, when he wrote the article, this is true, and, and Mark Lilla is still alive, he, he would not claim any sort of religious faith. So anyway, he writes the article about this Billy Graham crusade. And he goes to Billy Graham crusade and he meets these college kids, which is interesting because they're the same age that he was when he deconstructed his faith. And they're going to this Billy Graham uh, crusade. And of course, it's kind of bothering him. Now, one of the kids had grown up in a Christian household, but one of the college kids had grown up in Poland. No religious affiliation, no religious background. And this guy, who's the, school, the, 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 the students, they, they, were, they were students at the University of Pennsylvania, Warden School of Business, right? The elite school. And this guy had no religious affiliation, no religious background, and he goes to Billy Graham Crusade, and his life is dramatically changed. He gives his life to the Lord. He, he becomes a Christian. And so he's telling this to Mark Lilla, and Mark Lilla is just flabbergasted at this. You know, he says, why? Why would you do this? And the college kid says, well, he said, this is from the article, he says, what he was saying tonight just made so much sense. This is what the, the guy from Poland said. And here's Mark Lillo's reply. And I love this. It's so very honest. He says, I found it hard to conceal my bafflement since Billy Graham had not said much at all. You must be born again. That was it. I felt a pro professional lecture welling up in my throat about the history and psychology of religion. I wanted to expose him to the pastique of biblical texts. The syncretic nature of Christian doctrine, the church's ambiguous role as an incubator and stifler of human knowledge, the theological idiosyncrasy of, of American evangelicalism. I wanted to warn him against the anti-intellectualism of American religion today and to the political abuses to which it was subject. I wanted to cast doubt on the step that he was about to take to help him to see that there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, other ways to love, perhaps even other ways of self-transformation. I wanted to convince him that his dignity depended on maintaining a free skeptical attitude toward doctrine. And then he says this, I wanted to save him. And Mark Lilla realized that he was as much of an evangelist as Billy Graham was. He says in the article, I thought I had given up evangelism, but I realized that I still was an evangelist. It was just a different gospel. But he's very honest about it. And he says the gospel that he has now, that he had when he wrote the article, he's like, it was really no gospel at all. He's like, all I wanted the guy to do was just doubt <laughs> 
like I was doubting. I didn't actually have an answer for him. I just wanted him to be a fellow doubter. He says this in the article. He says, the curious thing about skepticism is that its inherence, ancient and modern, he's reflecting on having read ancient skeptics, its adherents, ancient and modern, have so often been proselytizers. Proselytizers mean to, to, to share that, to, to try to get others to believe as you do. He says, in reading them, I've wanted to ask, why do you care? Their skepticism offers no good answer to that question. And then he says, as, 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 as a proselytizer himself, and I don't have one for myself. But of course, the answer is, whether you like it or not, you're an evangelist. You, you think that people should believe as you believe, even if all you believe is that you should doubt what you believe. But how much more of an evangelist should you be if you actually believe an answer? If you actually believe that there is good news, that there is good news in the gospel of Jesus? This is a really helpful text, back to Colossians, for us to look at. You know, I actually once, there's a lot I could say here. I once did a four-part sermon series just on this one little text. So I had a lot of notes to look at on this, and I wrote a lot of new stuff too, but I only have 23 minutes left. So you're only going to get three quick points. Steadfast and watchful prayer, wisdom toward outsiders, and gospel salt. Let's, let's jump into the text. I like this because this, these are really just the points of the text here. So let's look at steadfast and watchful prayer. This, we see this in verse two. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's kind of the first main point here. Paul then gives a, a little bit of a personal exhortation. We'll come back to that though. But steadfast and watchful prayer. Be steadfast in your prayers. And, and he's particularly talking about here, we know this because of just the context of the text. He's talking about evangelistic prayer. Be steadfast in your prayer for others. Be, be steadfast in your intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is, is prayer for others, right? It's prayer on behalf of others. So, you know, all your prayers that are like, Lord, bless me, Lord, take care of me. Those are good prayers. I'm not saying don't pray that way. But an intercessory prayer is a, is a prayer on behalf of someone else, is seeking God for the sake of someone else. That's what he's saying. He's to be steadfast in those. You know, Ian e. Bounds has this great quote. He says, talking to men for God is a great thing. So evangelism, talking to men, going out and talking to people about God for God is a great thing. But then he says this, but talking to God for men is greater still. He will never talk well and with real success to men for God who has not learned well how to talk to God for men. And I believe this is the first step of evangelism, to be, to be steadfast in prayers, to, to have a prayerful and intercessory heart toward others, to pray that God would move in the heart of others. Even as Paul exhorts, let, let's go back here to uh, verse three, this is kind of Paul saying, hey, don't forget about us. He says, at the same time, pray for us also. And then what does he say to pray? That God would open a door to declare the mystery of Christ, of which account I'm in prison, that I make the mystery of Christ, the, the bigness and the fullness of the gospel, that I make the, the full mystery of God saving us and restoring us himself. There's a lot to that, obviously, but that I make that mystery very clear 
which is how I ought to speak. Pray that God would open a door, that I would make it clear. And I, and I believe that as we're interceding for the, the people that don't know the Lord that are in our lives, this is how we should pray. God, open a door that I could make your gospel clear as we intercede for them. You know, th- this impulse of intercessory prayer, it's exactly what we see from our Lord Jesus. I want you to hear this. If you are in Christ, you know, Romans 8 tells us this, that Jesus, even right now, is at the Father's right hand praying for you, interceding for you by, the, by his own righteousness, by the cost of his wounds. He's praying for you, interceding for you. If you are a follower of Christ, is this how we behave for others? Are any of us doing this toward others? Are we, you know, he who talks to men for God does well, but he who talks to God for men does even better. The, the first step to having an evangelistic life is having a life of prayer, talking to God for men. Now, I want to be really practical here. It's okay, what, how, do, how do you do this? What does this look like? And, and, and some of you may have great systems. I'm going to give you three little tips, um, but these are just tools for thought. If, you, if, you, if you're like, man, I pray for others every day and I don't use any one of those, then forget everything I said. Just keep doing what you're doing. But if you're like, man, I, I would love to grow in intercessory prayer, here's just three things that I've personally found to be very effective. The first is a prayer journal. Now you can use any journal. I love our rhythms journal. There's plenty of space in here for your prayers. There's plenty of space in here to pray for others. This is a great tool. You can pick it up on the way out. Um, and I, for me personally, writing down who I'm praying for, what I'm praying for them is incredibly helpful for me, first of all, just to keep a record of it. But secondly, the, you know, the second exhortation in this is to be watchful in your prayer. And what Paul is saying there is keep an eye open for when the Lord answers the prayer. And you know, sometimes you forget what you pray. But having a record of that, it's been amazing in my life to go back and read some of my journals and say, wow, the Lord has really answered this prayer. And the Lord answers our prayers so often in ways that aren't exactly like we prayed, right? They're different in how we pray. But I think as you're watchful in prayer, you can see actually it was that prayer that the Lord was answering. Y'all know how many prayers that I have prayed, like how many buildings I've driven past and say, Lord, please give us this building. Please give us this building. This was before we had a building. This is where we had this building. This is when we were, you know, meeting at the Cochise Club, you know. And, you know, we, we built this building, which I believe is an answered prayer. It was a more kind of traditional path. Um, we bought a building and refurbished it. Again, I think God has provided for us. It's an answered prayer. But, man, then this Sandy Springs scene comes along. It's like, wow, like the Lord is providing for, I believe, this future space mission need, gospel outpost need. And it was, I, I never drove past that building and prayed for it. But the Lord answered it in this, I think, amazing way. And the Lord does that all the time. With a lot of my evangelistic prayers, be watchful in your prayers. And, and I think having a record of those prayers is incredibly helpful for this. It also helps you to be disciplined. You know, Frank Barker, who is a, is a guy that I greatly admire. He's now with the Lord, but he was a longtime pastor in Birmingham. He was the founding pastor of, of Briarwood Presbyterian Church over there. And Frank would, I love this, he would, he would make an acrostic for every day of the week because he wanted to have variety in his prayers. And he prayed about so many things. So this is like, this is an example, like Monday, he would, uh, he would pray for M, missionaries. Oh, 
outside ministries, like he would pray for campus outreach and Young Life and all of these other ministries that weren't his own church ministry. New ventures, he would pray for you know, things that the church was thinking about doing, but, you know, wasn't currently doing. But I love this. He was incredibly disciplined in this. And, you know, every day of the week, you know, Tuesday, you know, T-U-E, he, he had all of, the, all of the days, he had these big acrostics and he would just work through them. And a lot of Frank's prayers were evangelistic prayers. He was an incre- he, he, he took this incredibly to heart. And if you know anything about Birmingham, if you've, if you've spent any time in Birmingham, about half the city, you know, half the baby boomers in Birmingham were led to faith by Frank Barker. And so the guy had an amazing uh, ministry of evangelism, but it, it really started like this. It started with just diligent prayer, and a, a prayer journal was a part of that. You know, another practical tool is just prayer walking. You know, I love to do this. Just there's something about walking, going on a walk that sets my mind at ease. Uh, this is sometimes where I do my best prayer for, for you. I pray through my parish. When I pray for my friends, I pray for neighbors that don't know the Lord, just walking by their house. This is a great, simple thing. It's a great rhythm to have in your life. And then another one, you know, we have this great tool. All of our spiritual rhythms that we talk about here, we have these great field guides. But one of them we talk about personal evangelism. And I would encourage you, go to the emphasis table on the way out. If you want to, t- to dive deeper in all of this, a lot of what we are covering today we're going to, is, is covered in this little booklet here. But we also have these little cards that go along with this. And this is just a simple card with a couple lines on it. There is nothing magical about this card. But it's a reminder for you to write down the name of one person or two people or three people that you know don't know the Lord that you're committed to be praying for, to pray for, and, you know, you can put this card in your wallet. You can put it uh, on your you know, desk or wherever, just a place that you will see it to remind yourself to be steadfast, steadfast in prayer, to be steadfast in these kinds of prayers, these intercessory prayers that people may hear and believe and, and come to follow the Lord Jesus. There's a lot more that <laughs> I wish I could say uh, just about uh, prayer But I want to get to the next point here. Wisdom toward outsiders. So point number two, Paul exhorts the church at Colossae here to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Now, the language Paul's using here, we actually use, um, if you've been around Christ's covenant for any time, we talk about inward-facing relationships and outward-facing relationships. So inward-facing relationships are the kind of relationships that you have with other Christians, right? There is a unity that you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a, there's a shared experience. The, 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 the Holy Spirit is alive in you. you know, faith is alive in you. And so you know, when I meet with a brother, so like if I were to meet with Ben, we were to talk, like that's an inward-facing relationship. We can encourage one another in the faith. And you need these in your lives. That's why we have small groups and cohorts. And, and that's even happening right now. One of the things I love about this service you guys make me so proud afterward, after the service. You can, like 30 minutes after the service, you know where you guys are? Y'all are just hanging out in here. You're, you're encouraging one another. You're, you're sharpening one another. You're, you're lifting one another up. We need that in the Christian life. But you also have outward-facing relationships. And these are relationships you have with people that, that don't know the Lord. People you have with, with friends and family members that aren't following Jesus. And, and the Bible over and over exhorts us in these kinds of relationships too. Walk in wisdom 
in those, right? Know, know how you ought to answer each person. Use your time in outward-facing relationships wisely. Now, we, we talked in our teaching meeting this week, what is, where is our church, right? Where, where are our folks in terms of how do you think about evangelism? And we, we said, well, there's, there's, there's probably three big categories of folks. The first, you know, category is, is people that you may not have just, you may not have thought much about evangelism. You maybe grew up in a church that didn't talk about evangelism that much. You may be new to the faith and you know that God has done something big in your life, but you, you don't really, you're not really comfortable with this responsibility that he's given you to share with others about your relationship with Jesus. There's a second group and maybe you grew up in a church. I won't make you raise your hand, you know, if you're in the first group, second group or third group, but maybe you grew up in a church and they, they talked a lot about evangelism and there was a lot of tools and you ever, you ever, I won't make you raise your hand, but you know what I'm talking about? There was these tools, these like, you know, I grew up there was like these videos we would watch about evangelism. And in the video, it was so simple. And everybody in the video would be like, tell me how to follow Jesus, you know? And, and you know, but you, you get out there and you try these things and it's a little more awkward and it's kind of weird and, and you come up against questions that you're not, super familiar with. And again, a lot of these tools are really, really good. Well, I don't mean to like in any way disparage kind of these evangelistic methodologies. I mean, the Lord has used, you know, the Romans road or four spiritual laws or, or whatever. He's used these things in mighty and powerful ways. But since these tools were developed, the world in many ways has changed. Um, just a couple of, of ways. You know, I was thinking about four spiritual laws, and, which is a great tool that I think is still good to use. But, you know, since Bill Bright wrote that in like the 50s or 60s, you know, the world's really changed. You know, a couple of generations ago, most people grew up in church. And so the mental furniture of, you know, there is a God, um, there's sin, there's some, like Jesus has done something amazing. I mean, a lot of those pieces in people's minds were in place. And, and what these evangelistic tools did very well is they just kind of helped put them in order. They kind of helped reorganize them so people could really understand and believe in the goodness of the gospel. But, but today we live in a world where a lot of those mental, if you will, furniture pieces aren't really there anymore. People don't believe in a God. People don't see themselves as sinful. They, they maybe understand that Jesus was a historical figure, but they, they think that much of the amazing parts about him are just myths that people attach to him. You know, second major change is that in, in, in those days, you know, two, a couple generations ago, people had a very positive view toward the church. You know, they may not have been followers of Jesus, but they thought they saw the church as a good institution or they, they saw Christians as trying to do a good thing. Of course, that's really changed. I mean, today, a lot of people around you do not see the church as a good institution or they don't see Christians as necessarily doing something good. That's, that's made this a lot more difficult, made these evangelistic tools a lot more difficult. Or then third, and this is an interesting thing too, there's, there, there's been this uh, reorienting of how we understand ourselves as individuals and collectives in society. You know, you know, my parents and particularly my grandparents' generation, they really saw the big, the institutional, the collective as good <laughs> and the individual as more flawed, right? 
A couple generations ago, that's, that's how people kind of viewed the world. People were more patriotic, right? They saw America, the big is good, or the church, big institution is good. But then they were more introspective. They saw themselves as having these more deep kind of personal flaws. Well, of course, today it's the exact opposite, isn't it? You go around and ask people, and it's the institutions, right? Just go talk to somebody. Oh, the, the government is totally messed up. The church is totally messed up. Insurance companies are totally messed up, right? Whatever it is, any big institution, bad. But me, myself, I'm good, right? And if there is anything wrong with me individually, it's only because of these bad, big institutions that messed me up, right? I went to the wrong school. I had the wrong parents or whatever it is. Anyway, I only say that to say we, we, we live in an interesting world. And walking in wisdom toward outsiders requires us really being able to understand the times or exegete the culture, to really, to really understand what culture has the Lord called us, and I want you to hear this, has the Lord called us to minister within so the first group, people who haven't thought much about evangelism. The second group, maybe you have some evangelistic tools, but they can feel kind of frustrating or outdated. The third group, and I want to speak to this group too. I think this is probably most of the folks. Your evangelistic method that you were taught was just, hey, invite your friends to church, right? Invite your friends to church. Evangelism is complex. So your job is just to invite them to church and leave it to the professionals. We'll handle all the Bible teaching. You know, we're a full service shop, you know? We can evangelize all your friends for one low price of a tithe and working in the parking lot every other month, you know. <laughs> and I think that's kind of how, again, I'm not in, against inviting your friends to church, at least inviting some of your friends to church. I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But I do think that that mentality, first of all, it kind of gives a wrong definition of what the church is. It's not aligned with an actual, the actual reality of the church. The church, I want you to hear this. This is not the church. This is a gathering of the church. Right? The church is not fundamentally the gathering, the worship service. No, the church is the people who've been called out by the gospel, who've been called together as a gospel people and who are sent out for the power of the gospel. And sometimes the church gathers. That's what we're doing right now. And the gathering is very important. But most of the time, the church scatters. And you are no less the church when you're scattered than you are when you're gathered. And I want you to understand that. We don't wanna have a church that can only minister the gospel to people one hour a week in one place. We want to have a church that ministers the gospel 168 hours a week in every place that you go, in every place that you scatter. So I want to come back to this idea, but one of the problems with the invite your friends to church is I think it, 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 it doesn't frame up or it doesn't define what the church really is rightly. Even though, again, I would still say for some of your friends, you should invite them to church. I have some friends, and maybe they're not following Jesus, but they're not against the church. But I have other friends that are deeply committed to secular ideology that see major problems with the church that are put off by what we're even doing here. You know, it's interesting, and this is not in my notes, but literally, I was in the back hall 
um, between the services. And I ran into a young woman, and she's in my parish, so I know her pretty well. And um, we were talking about her work. And she's, she's struggled in her workplace, but she's really started to see herself as an ambassador for the Lord in her workplace. And her workplace keeps firing people, but somehow she doesn't get fired, you know. And I really believe the Lord has her there, but she's struggling because it's a very, very secular environment. And she said, this week, literally this week, she was talking in her office about Christmas decorations. What an innocuous little thing to be talking about. And that gave her an opportunity to have a 45-minute conversation with her boss that is deeply committed to secular ideology, ideology that, that, that hates Christianity. And she says, you know, the, the conversation was kind of rough at times, but I'm glad her first impulse wasn't, I need to invite him to church. You know, you know, forget sexual ethics or the idea of gender or anything like that. I mean, for a lot of people in the world, the, the idea of a group of people worshiping a 2,000-year-old dead guy that we believe is going to return and rule over the entire universe is a strange idea. So you need to start at your kitchen table. <laughs> you need to start at the coffee table, building a relationship, letting the people see the power of the gospel in your life, helping them understand that this Jesus actually is real and he's real and they can see that he's real because he's manifesting himself in you. There's, there's a lot more I wish I could say here. I wanna say a word here you know, to this idea though, because our, our goal is that you would be gospel fluent. Let's, let's look at verse six. I, I love this. I love the way it says it here. It says, let your speech always be gracious. So notice how gospel presentations are to be gracious, right? This isn't from a place of self-righteousness. This isn't from a place where we're condescending others because they are not as smart as we are. No, let your speech be gracious, humble, from one sinner in need of grace to another. And then I love this, seasoned with salt. Like a good chef, right, knows how to just season the meat just right. That, that's, that's who we're supposed to be in Christ. We, we season our lives, our, our conversations with, with gospel salt. And then notice how individual it is, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You may, you may listen, who am I talking to here, <laughs> How do I season this conversation with gospel salt? What we're talking about here is this idea that we talk about a lot at Christ's covenant called gospel fluency. Gospel fluency. Um, this is one of our values as a church. And where it came from, you know, when, when we first moved to Atlanta, we realized that a lot of people in Atlanta knew the gospel about like how I know Spanish. A lot of the Christians in Atlanta know the gospel about like how I know Spanish. Now, I know a little Spanish, right? I can get around, uh, you know, I can find the bathroom in a Spanish-speaking country, right? But I, I don't know enough Spanish to actually have a meaningful relationship with a Spanish speaker unless I have a Spanish translator, right? And so we, we kind of got here and we realized like Atlanta is so dependent on gospel translators, there's Christians, they know a little gospel, but if they really start to have a meaningful conversation with somebody, it's like, well, let me let you listen to this podcast or let me invite you to church or they, they insert a gospel translator. And again, there's nothing wrong with podcasts or books or again, those kinds of things. But 
But what are, my hope as a pastor for you is that you would be gospel fluent, that you would know how to apply the gospel to your life and to the, the lives of everyone around you. Now, that is a massive project, right? We're not talking about something that I can do in the you know, one minute and 13 seconds that I'm supposed to finish my sermon. I'm gonna go a little over that. But we're, we're not talking about something that I can do right now. That's why we have the Covenant Institute. That's why we come to worship every day. That's why I have groups. That's why I have cohorts. That's why I have all of these things. But real quick, in, in the last little bit of time that I have, a template that I think is so helpful and you, know, you hear us talking about this, but I just wanna put it before you again. As we think about seasoning our conversations with gospel salt, and the, the template is God, man, Jesus response. This is how we're seasoning our conversations. So in order for somebody to be a Christian, they, they have to have some sort of faith in God. They have to believe that there is a God who is good, who created them, who, who desires their worship. You know, and, and I've had so many conversations with people where, you know, they'll come into the conversation saying, well, I don't know if I can believe in a God. And just with a few questions, you know, one of the things that I always use here, and I wish I had more time here, but one of the things I always try to go at with people is saying, like, the biggest things in your life, like justice, like love, explain that to me in a strictly material world. And there's really no good answers for that. The, the most important things that we believe are not material things. And so where does that come from with materialistic view of the world? The second idea here is man, that we, of course, need God, that we have fallen from God. We are made to worship God. We're made to obey him. But of course, we've gone out and gone our own way. We've, we've sinned against God. The interesting thing about man is that you'll find as you start to get into evangelistic conversations that people are quick to admit that man is messed up and broken but they're slow to admit that they are messed up and broken, right? You talk to anybody and they'll tell you, the world is broken, right? The world is so broken. Nobody, nobody denies that. What they fail to see is their own culpability in the brokenness of the world. But, but so often what I've done in these kind of conversations is I'll just say, well, why, you know, is Wall Street messed up? Greed, right? You know, they know why. They can name the sin. Greed. I say, well, is there any greed in your life? And they're too honest to be like, no, I'm not greedy at all. You know? Well, why is this messed up? Well, people are selfish, self-centered. Is there any selfishness in your life? Is there any dishonesty in your life? You, you, could just, you, can, you can take the big picture and then say, well, is that not true of you? And if they're, if they're honest at all, they will come to realize their own part of the problem, their own culpability. And of course, then we, we get to Jesus we do need a savior, but God in his kindness has, has offered us this, this gracious savior. Now, the biggest, people's biggest problem here is the exclusivity of the gospel, right? It's not that they, they resist that Jesus, you know, if, that's, if, if Jesus is how you do it, good for you, but I do yoga or whatever, you know. But when they start to realize, you know, every other worldview, I think when people start to realize how unique the gospel is, this is not so foreign to them. You know, every worldview says you have to get to the top of the mountain. You know, you have to do this, 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 and this, and then you'll make it. Then you'll please God, or then you'll be justified, or whatever your worldview is. There's some system of going up, 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 up. But, but I would just challenge you, what, what, what gospel is like ours that God himself has condescended, has come down to us to identify with us? 
to identify with us at our worst, that he takes on the record of our deepest, our deepest sins, our most horrible flaws. That's how Jesus identifies with us. That's where he identifies with us. And he dies in our place and he offers us forgiveness and he offers us a record of his righteousness. That's different than anything else. And people start to see that. The, the exclusivity of the gospel actually makes sense. The goodness of the evangel begins to make sense. And then, of course, the last thing is response. You have to respond. You have to respond. Are you going to believe in this Jesus? Are you going to follow this Jesus? Or are you going to stay in your sin? You're going to stay in your selfishness. You're going to continue to reject the ways of the Lord. And one of the reasons that I love that we do communion every week here or baptism is these are these physical things that kind of put this right in front of our face every single week. I love it. Every single week, we're kind of, you have to face the gospel and you have to respond you know, the Christian life, of course, we believe in responding to the gospel initially. But the Christian life is about continually responding to the gospel. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Do you really believe that there is a God that is good and holy and right? He created you in his image for, to worship him, to know him. Do you really believe that you've done that or that you've sinned, you've fallen away from him? Do you really believe that God in his mercy has pursued you for salvation through Jesus? Who on the night that he was betrayed to bread before his disciples and he says, this is my body. It's broken for you. It's given for you. I've identified with you in this most profound way. Do you really believe that? This is my blood shed for you and making a covenant with you so you can know me, so you can be in me, experience forgiveness, experience love, experience power. Do you believe that? And the great thing about communion, this communion meal, is that if you do, if you, if you take this meal here in just a few moments, it's a response of faith. We're saying, in a sense, yes, Lord, I do. But the Bible actually also says, don't take this in an unworthy way. Don't, don't take this without faith. Don't, don't take... Don't do this act that's pointing your soul toward Jesus if your soul is really pointed towards sin. And so for all of us in the room, whether a life in Christ is relatively new to you or whether you've been following Jesus for a long time, as we prepare to take communion, I challenge you to examine your heart, to ask God to examine your heart, to confess your sin before the Lord to find that the points of your soul that are pointed away from the things of Jesus, to surrender those things to the Lord. Help us to surrender like Georgian prayed and to point your heart and to point your attention and to point your life toward Jesus, who is our savior and friend and Lord. And this is a sign of that. And so I invite you, if that's not the posture of your heart today, my invitation to you is when the elements are passed here in a few moments, don't, just let them pass. Don't, consider those things. Pray about those things. Don't do this in a disingenuous or unworthy way. But if that is the posture of your heart, then the table is open. To be renewed in faith, to respond again to the goodness of this gospel. Let's stand and sing.
and respond as the elements are passed.